not sure. Uh, I dumped Russell accidentally, and so I'm hoping that he's going to get started back in here and underway with uh, fellowship. So. All right. Yeah, well, all right, Isaac. So I'll leave you with that. I know you'll probably be muting down, you said, and that's fine. Anybody that feels the need, you can, when you're on your phone, you can just mute the, use your own mute on your phone uh, rather than having me have to mute you. And that kind of helps right there as far as background noise or anything. If you feel like you, you need to go ahead and mute, you can mute your own line. And I'm going to go ahead and uh, underway here. Russell's got back up. I don't know. running along fairly smooth here for a while. We haven't had any glitches, but I understand that TalkShoe, I had some communication with uh, somebody by email, and they're, they're indicating that they're doing some upgrades, uh, have some changes that they're doing to the uh, page uh, as well. Um, so with all things considered, it could be that, you know, they're running something now or something as well. It could be that that's, that's impacted. So, again, as I say, anybody that needs to, you can mute your own handset on your phone if you need to mute down or anything. But we're already about 15 minutes into it. So just, again, I'll say welcome to everybody. You're listening to the Gideon Warrior Network. And uh, just want to remind you, you can... Uh, email us at gideonelite at protonmail.com and I do get email requests or questions from time to time and I got a couple this week here on a different matter and I'll bring that up in the future here it looks like probably but we do want to just say thanks for taking the time to stop in to the uh, podcast and taking a listen and listening to the archives. So we do appreciate that. And as usual, I appreciate you guys taking some time to fellowship with me. And I know that uh, we've been doing this study here in Hosea. Uh, last week uh, in part 11, we found a record of the rebuke of not Israel only, but also of Judah. And that's not insignificant. I want to keep making points of these things because one of the things that I think so many Bible students are missing and so forth is that there is uh, a propensity by their teachers to ignore that there are not only different prophets sent to the different houses, House of Israel and the House of Judah, uh, and and also different punishments. And so 
wanted to always try to take some time for, for those that might be unfamiliar or have not had that shared with them and were unable to glean it themselves in the scriptures at this moment yet in their walk. So we left off at 5.15, and um, 5.15 says, Hosea 5, verse 15, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction, they will seek me early. Now, that's the King James Version. If you have another version, you may find that there's something else there, and I'm going to discuss that, in fact. But I wanted to take a little time to return to that verse. In part 11, I conveyed that many in the church world point to scriptures such as this one, among others, and teach that this is another indication that Israel goes out of existence, God has cast them off, he has no other uh, dealings with them at all. And as I indicated, some even go so far as to imply and even outright teach that it was Judah who in their affliction sought him early, and thus God allowed them, that is Judah, to return from their captivity in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And they'll even point to Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 to 14, as a confirmation of that. But again, if this is so, why doesn't God specify Judah will seek him early? Well, the answer, of course, is it doesn't, and God doesn't intend that interpretation of it. In fact, Remember I said there's something in that passage there that different translations of the Bible might have differently. The phrase, seek me early, is actually earnestly or diligently, number 7836 and Strong's. So that changes it from early to earnestly. So that's another cut to those that want to say that Israel went out of existence, no longer to be dealt with by God at all, and to try to use this scripture, as among others, as I indicated, in order to peddle the, that, that doctrine. And the way that we know whether we're making an incorrect interpretation, I think a good way to do that is what I've adopted, and I've shared that with you in fellowships in the past, is to take what it is that we're being required to believe and ask, what exactly am I being required to believe? So in this particular instance, and again, I want to make enough of a point of this because the church world has taught everybody, nearly without exception, that Israel went out of existence and really the only people then that you are subsequently to be concerned with at all is God's relationship with Judah. But in order to believe that doctrine, this is just a few of the things that we have to believe right here. Number one, they will not acknowledge their offense. Although the scripture says, hell, they acknowledge their offense. Secondly, 
they will not seek his face. Although the scripture says they will seek his face. We have to believe they will not acknowledge him earnestly. We have to acknowledge that this verse is a lie. And all those scriptures revealed in our fellowship study in Israel, Judah, and Jew, and the Bible itself are incorrect. And fifth, the context of the verse and the subject is they. No delineation is made between one or the other. So the they is still referring to both Israel and Judah. So what do we do to confirm and verify the correctness of our understanding versus a false doctrine? Well, simply we've got to just let it happen scripturally. Somebody open up to Jeremiah chapter 29. I'm going to go to Leviticus 26. That was Jeremiah 29. I'll begin in Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26, I'm beginning at verse 40. Here is a promise from God. If they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, with their trespass, which they trespassed against me, and that also they have walked contrary unto me, and that I also have walked contrary unto them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they then accept the punishment of their iniquity, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember and I will remember the land. The land also shall be left of them and shall enjoy the, her Sabbaths while she lie desolate without them. They shall accept of the punishment of their iniquity because, even because, they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. And yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them. For I am Yahweh, their God. But I will do, I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen, that I might be their God, I am Yahweh. Who's got Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 12 and 13? Uh, yeah, I'm just about there. Uh, 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. So there you have it. You know, it's easy to forget things that we've read 
from so long ago in Scripture, isn't it? I mean, if we started at the beginning and we started to read through, and there we are in Hosea, it'd be pretty easy for us to forget what we read in Leviticus. And so I have to consider that in order to believe that doctrine, that this, this Scripture also and this promise of God is also a lie. And, of course, let them argue with God's words. That's what I say. The best way for us to know whether or not we're on a false doctrine or we're following a path of a false doctrine that has been given to us by church leaders is to let Scripture explain itself. Uh, A couple of other scriptures, Uh, we went into Jeremiah 30, 10 to 17, and Isaac, while you're there, go ahead and flip to 30 and keep a finger there, but uh, we'll come to that after a little bit here. I think I'll I'll swerve into that a little bit later on, Um, but a couple other passages, uh, Ezekiel 6, 8 through 11, chapter 20, verse 43, and chapter 36, 25 to 32 in Ezekiel. You know, it's, like I say, it's so Old Testament, but one of my other models has been whether doctrines or parables, allegories or visions, prophecies or metaphors, and even Scripture itself, we must remember we cannot be misled to interpret them contrary to the laws of God, contrary to the biblical historical record. And so as long as we stay grounded in asking what it is that we need to believe, and remember that all those parables, allegories, visions, prophecies, Scripture itself, we can't be misled to interpret them contrary to the whole of the biblical record. It's that important. So let's see if our false teachers teaching the false doctrines of Israel went out of existence can accept some New Testament Scripture pertaining to this. Let's turn over to Luke chapter 1. It's my favorite. And we've all been there before. Luke chapter 1, verses 67-79. I'll read through that, and somebody can go to Luke chapter 2 then, 25 to 34, as soon as we conclude with this, and we'll just go right into it. Blessed be the, uh, excuse me, 67. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins 
through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the desert till the day of his showing unto Israel. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know, Israel went out of existence. God no longer dealt with him. Here we have Zacharias confirming exactly what the prophets conveyed, exactly what God told the prophets they Israel. Who's got Luke uh, 2, 25-34? Go ahead. All right, I'll get it quick. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for the consolation of Israel? Boy, if you think about it, you'd have to consider that this Israelite here, Simeon, waiting for the consolation of Israel, must have been a really dumb individual. <clears throat> or deceived because he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Ghost was upon him. Well, I tell you what, if the Holy Ghost was on him, I wouldn't think he was deceived. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, they then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. A light to lighten the Gentiles the glory of the people of Israel. And I'll end there. Now, maybe I better read on to 34. I think that's what I had in my notes. And Joseph and his mother marveled at these things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Quote. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. It's really not that tough to refute that doctrine. And I don't mean to belabor it while we're trying to do the study in Hosea, but it, it really is another point that you have to almost bring out because so many people have been given such false doctrine regarding Israel going out of existence that it's hard for them to understand or to make these scriptures applicable. And so for that purpose, I wanted to make sure that we took a little time to take that little detour. And now I've got to get back to Isaiah and chapter 6, which is where will begin now. So at Hosea chapter 6, 1, Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he has torn, and he will heal us. He has smitten, and he will bind us up. 
the more I consider things, I was talking with Russell the other day, and the more I look at things in Scripture and each particular passage, the more I become uh, convinced greater and greater that every word, every passage has a has a meaning that sometimes we just don't think about and and that's why we're breaking these scriptures down passage by passage and slowing down and walking through it trying to bring the whole of the scripture together so in this passage here Hosea is reiterating the common prophet's refrain let us return that's the common refrain from every prophet is, why are we doing this to ourselves? Why are we doing this? Why don't we stop doing what it is that we're doing that is going to infuriate our God, turn his hand against us, that we would be smitten? And so here it is. Let us return. The interesting reference here to torn uh, is that, well, I did do that. Deuteronomy 32, 39. Uh, Interesting how when we read out of Leviticus, we actually had God almost prophesying, if you will, that when we were to sin and find ourselves backsliding, that if we would return to him and so forth, then he would be good to us. Deuteronomy 32 and 39. Listen to what it says. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. So if he's going to wound or tear and heal, that reference in Hosea 6 verse 1 is just like the reference of a lion. And of course he refers to that then in in. Uh, I think it's verse 2 or verse 3. And when you think about a lion getting its prey and then leaves its prey and walks off as if the prey was not good enough for it or has no interest in it. This word, you know, torn, I don't think modern Christians today, professing Christians, I don't even know if they know this scripture anymore. Because you almost think that if they did, they might consider living differently. Blessing and curse is right here revealed in this 6 verse 1. Let us return The Lord has torn, that's a curse, and he will heal. Blessing and cursing. And as we learned from Deuteronomy 32, 39, it's I that kills, 
he says, I make alive, I wound, and I heal. And there isn't any that can deliver out of my hand. And there isn't any God with him. There is no God standing there with him. It is he and he alone. We're not at liberty to extrapolate a doctrine which is contrary to the clear biblical intent of every scripture. Taken together, now let me do six, two, and three. After two days will he revive us. In the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. Then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain under the earth. So when you take together with verse 1, we see all the characteristics of God's definitive, progressive, and final nature. And this is routinely represented in Scripture. That's probably the first time you've heard this definitive, progressive, and final. See, he, he definitively punishes. Progressively, he is punishing, or he has torn. And finally, he will heal. And verse 3, of course, tells us, then shall we know, if we follow on, know the Lord. So verses 1 and 3 conveys a process the return or the repentance had to be after the captivity. We've already revealed and read scriptures of the past and certainly of the 70 years of the Babylonian captivity that was prophesied for Judah in Daniel. And that's how Daniel knew that it was time that they would be able to be released from the captivity. And so it was Daniel who went to the king and sought to go and begin the rebuilding of Jerusalem. See, the repentance doesn't heal the wound which causes the captivity of Israel. It is delayed, according to the scripture, if you will, two days in anticipation that God will heal and raise us that we shall live in his sight. And this record in Hosea is a proleptic, they call it, or a foreshadowing of future events. The raising up on the third day foreshadows the event of the ending of the old sinful Israel, cast off and divorced, Jeremiah 3.8, being raised with Christ, the Redeemer, God in the flesh, with a new relationship with him, Hebrews 8.8. 8. 
So the old covenant relationship is done away, ended in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, God in the flesh. And at the time of this prophecy, it had been nearly 2,000 years since Israel had been a unified nation. It's quite possible, Peter's reference in 2 Peter 3.8, that a day is as a thousand years, could symbolize this period of time right here. I'm not suggesting that it does. I'm saying that it could. It's irrelevant other than we read the scripture says two days and then the third day they would be raised up. So certainly a foreshadowing of Christ, the Redeemer, the healing, and how were they to be healed? The only way they could be healed was by the kinsman Redeemer. So Peter's statement of the day as a thousand years symbolizes a period of time, but Israel remains wounded without healing until the Redeemer comes. And he comes unto Israel as peaceful as the rain. It seems certain that the two and three day reference is certainly pointing to the death, burial, and resurrection of the Redeemer. It's the only event which really satisfies the the prophecy to revive Israel. And that word revive is number 2421. And it means revive, be quickened from faintness, sickness, discouragement, death, to refresh, to restore, restore to life. And I thought that was really interesting. Let's turn to Ephesians. Let's listen to how Paul spoke about it. I'm going to go to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read Ephesians 1, verse 1, 3, 4, 9, 12, and 13. Because I want it to flow in our mind. 1, 3, 4, 9, 12, 13. Here we go. Ephesians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Dropping down to 3. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4. According as he has chosen us, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Nine, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he has purposed in himself. Twelve, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 13, I did 2.13, that was 
Wow. We not only have Paul speaking to the saints, there is nobody in Scripture that is called the saints other than Israel. Nobody. Prove me wrong. He's talking about the, the mystery that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom you also trusted. Who first trusted in Christ? Paul is, is explaining exactly this very thing that we see in Hosea. I want to go to two now. I'm going to do verses 5 and 6. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in sins. Who was dead in sins? Israel was dead in sins. Even when we, Israel, were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Dropping down to verse 12. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. For he is our peace, verse 14, who has made us both one, and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, for to make himself of two, one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Now, there's a lot to go over here, but I'm not diverting here so that we can now do a study in Ephesians. I'm trying to make the point that the very types of language used by Hosea are used by Paul. Quickened. This is a present condition. Quickened together with Christ, who was God in the flesh and has raised us up together and made us to sit together. And who is this us, and who is the two being made one? And what is this enmity spoken of? I just asked. You see, Judah snubbed her nose at Israel. Israel sinned, and she got cut off from God. And the prophet said, you are divorced. And when we did Hosea parts 1, 2, and 3, we covered that great detail. So here we are. We have Judah, the pride of God, you see, and she's not a sinner. She's even been allowed to go back to Jerusalem. She's been released from her captivity. 
And so thus, you Israelites, you see, you're dirty. You're scoundrels. You're cast off. You are not of us. That is the enmity that was going on and still existed at the time of Christ, which is why he had so many rebukes against those in Judea. Some Judahites, some were not, because they carried a lot of the old Babylonian baggage out with them. And not only that, their arrogance that they were somehow better than the Israelites, even though God specifically says, you, Israel, Judah, you went and played the harlot also. As I say, I don't want us to think that we're getting far afield. Just because of this little diversion into Ephesians, it's necessary that we tie together not just the language only, or a mere word or two, but the legislative intent. The legislative history records. How can we understand what Paul is intending to convey in his epistle if we can't or don't allow the prophets to inform us? And as I say, there's so much in this chapter 1 and 2 of Ephesians, but we simply can't and shouldn't divert our attention from here on our Hosea study. But we'll let Paul summarize it for us in chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. Now therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So we can glean the aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise is and was none other than Jacob Israel, the ten northern tribes, having no hope and without God. However, Hosea chapter 1 and 2 recorded as you recall from parts 1 and 2 and 3, records her betrothal and remarriage and her redemption that chapter 3 foretold. It is the most profound love story. The God of Jacob Israel lays down his life for her. A selfless act of unimaginable love. And of course, John 15, 13 says, no greater love has a man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And this is exactly what the revelation of Jesus to John conveys. And I don't mean to be callous in this statement, but if we will not stop the error of ignoring the time statements of Matthew 24 and Revelation 1, Revelation 1 being these things which must shortly come to pass, and it's repeated, I think, four or five times, we can't understand 
the dowry that's actually revealed by the Lamb concerning the bride in Revelation 5.10. Daniel was told to seal the book in Daniel 12 till the time of the end. In 5.2 of Revelation, the question was, who's worthy to open the book? And John was reassured in the vision, it's the Lamb. The Lion of the tribe of Judah was worthy. And the scripture records, he opened the seals. Revelation 5.10 records that this people were made unto our God kings and priests once again to reign on the earth with their king over the dominion. As wicked as Israel had become, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> listen to how he remembers her. Back to Hosea. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew, it goes away. <laughs> we have just witnessed a profound love on this people Israel. This promise that he made to Jacob, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to have the church world throw it all away. Uh, he's done with Israel, cast her out, she's divorced, never to do anything with her again. That's it, the old whore. I find that remarkable when I read those words. Oh, Ephraim, what shall I do unto you? Oh, Judah, what shall I do unto you? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew goes away. And I don't know, many of you know, you know a morning cloud kind of is wispy over the sun or something, and you, you get that bright orange shining through and, and then when it goes away it reveals the warmth of that sun that's about to come upon you. And he says, your goodness is as a morning cloud, as the early dew, it goes away. And that's what happens. The dew, that sun comes out and the dew just goes away and you can see clearly. And you have to be just going, huh? What? Her goodness. Is God sick? You know, something happened to him. Did he get hit over the head? Oh. Verse 6, Hosea 6, 6. Let me do 5. Therefore have I hewed them by the prophets, meaning he struck them. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, meaning just what we read in Deuteronomy 29, Leviticus 26. And thy judgments are as the light that goes forth. Just as sure as the light goes forth, 
so did that judgment. Six, for I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Seven, but they like men have transgressed the covenant. There have they dealt treacherously against me. But they like men. You know, when you think about it, when we act like men, we're really not very much in the image of God, are we? No. <laughs> we're like the image of a beast. Yeah. Some some of the translations um, are now using the word Adam. Some of the uh, you know doctors and so forth use Adam here. Either way, to me, the likeness of God is in obedience to His command, and and Adam certainly failed in the obedience to the command. Israel failed in the obedience to the command, and so we act like men. Not in the image of God. In the image of and likeness of God, we would we would act according to His will. Verse eight. Gilead is a city of them that work iniquity and is polluted with blood. Now Gilead. It's really more a region than it is a city. And that sometimes is the way, you know, metaphors get put. Gilead is a city. And um, it's that region, uh, which was that northern region, Ramoth, Gilead. When I was trying to make sense of this particular scripture, I found a comment in Smith's indicating according to strict Hebrew, the priests actually lied in wait to slay those fleeing to a city of refuge and were killing them. But I I had a little bit of a problem with that. And, and I'll share with you what I believe the scripture is referencing here. Gilead is a city of them that work iniquity and is imploded with blood. We've got to tie it with nine. And as troops of robbers wait for a man, so the company of priests murder in the way by consent, for they commit lewdness. We referred last week to the kingly assassinations of 2 Kings 15 in in part 11 in Hosea. And I believe that's part of this, but I think what this would be referring to historically would, yes, in part, perhaps these series of assassinations of the kings, but I don't know that anybody would have been fleeing to cities of refuge um, who had just assassinated a king. So that part didn't really make sense to me. But what does make sense to me Remember, what was it, um, back in 4, no, it's in 5, verse 12, no, um, 5.11, Hosea 5.11, Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked 
after the commandment. So as I was looking for more information on this, I swerved into something that Clark indicated. He indicated that the priests formed themselves into companies and kept possession of the roads and passes. If they found any that were going to worship the God of Jacob, they put them to death. Remember, the commandment of 511 was the statutes of Omri. Remember uh, uh, 1 Kings 12 and Micah 6.6 that we went to in part 11. This was the, the commandment that, that the Israelites should not go up to Jerusalem anymore, that they should go up and worship the calf. And so I think Clark makes more sense in this. I don't know anything about how he derived about the you know, forming into companies and, and, and that they kept possession of the roads and passes. I can see that just as we look at our own civil governments and so forth and even our own you know church hierarchy you know they're the ones that are keeping the roads and passes if you will they're the ones trying to keep the sheep in the corral whatever the corral is that they built for them even though most of their corral hardly makes sense anymore because it's broken and it doesn't hold the true word of god so that really does make sense to me, and I think I could uh, agree that while I don't have enough in the Scripture to tell me exactly what that is saying, if I'm looking at the historical record, remember, taking it in the context of the biblical historical record, I would say, yeah, that makes sense. It sure doesn't make sense that you would find the priests saying, Anybody that's going up to Jerusalem, we're just going to slay him in the way. You know, that part of it just strikes your conscience and say, how could they possibly do that? Well, you, this is where that enmity began. That enmity began because when the division occurred, which was actually caused by God, when that occurred, there was this overwhelming sense that the king of, of Israel was going to lose control of the Israelites because they would seek to go up to Jerusalem for their annual pilgrimages and sacrifices and so forth. And so he automatically, in a knee-jerk reaction, says, I've got to, I've got to stop that from happening. I've got to prevent that from happening. So I'm going to need to set up this place of worship and this calf for them to look upon. And then you take that and you think of that rivalry as, as gee, we're now divided here. And if, if they go to Jerusalem to worship, then I'm going to lose them. This is part of the beginnings of that, that whole enmity. Here, Judah was still in charge of the location and the area of the worship of the God of Jacob Israel. And now suddenly, that was, you know, with a wedge in there. 
And so that certainly would begin the beginnings of that enmity between these two houses of Israel. In fact, they warred against each other. The kings went out against each other. And that's often missed by us as students of the Bible because we're listening to what somebody else is always telling us as opposed to really getting in and studying the Bible and and recognizing and understanding that that's what's happening. So in other words, I mean, what I mean by that is if our teachers aren't opening our eyes to that and periodically reminding us of that and so forth, it would be very easy to not recognize it or even have it have any consideration in your in your thoughts as, as you are going along in your studies because you're listening to what somebody else is saying as opposed to deriving and gleaning from the scriptural record what needs to be gleaned that helps you to make sense of this wonderful love story of the ages that is represented here in Hosea. Now, when we get into Hosea chapter 7, I'll just pause here, I guess, for a moment. I know we got a little bit of a late start, and I know Rich has joined us here, too, and and uh, uh, we have a little trouble on TalkShoe, apparently, for those that are signed in on the computer, but I think it looks like now everybody's on the phone. Um, so, anyhow, uh, if anybody has anything that they want to go back to or interject from the scriptures that we read, uh, that we referred to, or anything you can, and I know. I'm sorry. I'm uh, I'm asking you to add to speak up if you want, and I'm going to continue. But the reason I diverted into that Revelation five and and Matthew twenty four, I may have lost you guys there. So if somebody has something to say about that, but I'm I'm so disheartened continually about this idea that Revelation. I'm coming more to the conclusion, day by day, year by year, that Revelation has more to do with what has happened, what is going to happen. And that's a total shock for a lot of people as professing Christians because it's totally contrary to the doctrine that's been peddled. But as I say, Matthew 24 and Revelation both have timestamps on those. And so I brought it up at the point in which I did because we're sitting here, you know, talking about the scriptural uh, connections between Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And it just reminds me that we have languages that are conveying something. And an entire doctrine has been built around it that is totally contrary to the scripture itself. And that's why the slight diversion in my my head, I didn't mean to have everybody go, what in the world? How did he ever get to Matthew 24 and Revelation 5? Uh, it's just one of these little pet peeves that you have and suddenly it kind of overtakes you and you want to mention something about it. But um, if, if our people could understand Revelation as being something that's already been fulfilled and that we are reigning as kings and priests with our God and our king at the helm, 
it takes us all the way back into the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which says, I have made you kings and priests. And so being reunited with him, as has happened, Hebrews 8, 8, as I say, making a new covenant with them, maybe we should flip over there because I sometimes, you know, I, I know that you don't always know exactly where everybody else is. Pastor Peters used to say that all the time, you know. Sometimes you get a moving on because you think people are where you're at in understanding, and that's not to say that, you know, we're smart or, you know, anything else. We just continue to want to search this word out for its true meaning. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, for it is, for if, I should say, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, when I will make a new covenant. Remember, we're in the book of Hebrews. This is a New Testament scripture. when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, says the Lord. Right back to Hosea. He regarded them not. They were a nothing people. But Judah had to remain because the Lamb, the kinsman redeemer to redeem Israel, had to come through the lineage of Jacob Israel. Because that's the only way that the kinsman redeemer law works. And if we're going to have somebody redeem Jacob Israel, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, then we have to have a kinsman redeemer. And that's exactly what the lamb was, was the kinsman redeemer. So I'll pause here before we head on into Hosea chapter 7. See if there's some thoughts or anything you want to go back to and refer to or review quickly or anything. Well, we still got 15 minutes and we'll go ahead with Hosea 7. I, I want to say something about um, Revelation. You know, some of those things probably have come to pass and some of them we are living in, but I don't think all of it has because of uh, the last two, uh, 21 and 22, because uh, that's what what keeps me, uh, my hope, to see Revelation 20, well, maybe not me see it, but uh, for it to come about where all the, the filth is wiped from the earth. Uh, yes, I, I understand. There are some things that are hard. 
and there are some things that give us pause and give us question. I wouldn't even begin to try to profess to you that I've got all all the knowledge and everything that revelation can reveal. But as I say, I'm becoming more and more convinced um, that much of what the church world has at least taught us and is continuing to teach as a doctrine out of revelation. So until we're ready to actually go in and do a full study in revelation and come to the conclusions that the Bible leads us to, um, I don't have a problem with your your comment with regards to it looks as if there could still be some things that are yet unfilled, uh, unfulfilled and so forth. But when we do look at so much in Scripture, we see so many of these metaphors and so many of these uh, visions and allegories uh, that really seem apocalyptic in nature, if you will. And, you know, I mean, we can even go back to the book of Genesis. You know, the whole world was, was flooded. Well, we know that that was not the case. But that, again, is another church doctrine that the church can't shake loose of because it peddled it for so long that it's got to apparently keep the people believing it for some reason in their minds, uh, even though it's archaeologically, historically, it's been shown. Whatever happened on this earth long before the flood of Noah's day is an entirely different situation altogether that the Bible is simply silent on. Uh, We have a record beginning with Adam, basically, and... um, you know, a, a reiteration in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, if you will, uh, of creation, just as you would recapitulate when you are reiterating something that you've reviewed before. For example, when we review something we've reviewed in part 11 as opposed to what we're doing in part 12. So there's a lot of things that we know are just simply not true based on what the church world has taught. So I get it, Melissa. I don't have any problem with your thoughts that it sure seems like there could still be some things in Revelation that were indeed um, likely meant for a future day. But until we can definitively say that that's the case, using the scriptures to do it, then we remain open. We remain open to the study and to the conclusion of the whole matter. I get it. I don't have a problem with that thought at all. I wouldn't, don't even, so as I say, I mean, there's so much we've got to undo many respects that it's hard to know that every single passage in there, and, and I've said this before in past fellowships, there are prophecies that can be fulfilled and we can, from the historical record, conclude that that same prophecy, we could say, was fulfilled again because a similar occurrence or a similar situation has occurred. So, um, clearly, uh, 
end time events. I mean, what is the end of time? What is the end of time? Christ said that they didn't know, uh, you know, that only the Father knew. Flip over to Matthew 24 real quick, because that's the scripture that I swerved into there, and, and I just want to make sure that there's a little bit of a clarification on it. Matthew 24, Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. Jesus said unto them, See you not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when shall these things be, and what shall be the signs of thy coming and of the end? Of the age, that should not be world, it should be age. Some translations correctly use the word age. Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Once again, take heed, not that I deceive you, not that Satan deceives you, that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. Many take that scripture right there to say that there's going to be an individual that's going to say, I am Christ, without taking into consideration that there are going to be many coming in his name saying that Jesus is the Christ and still shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars, rumors of wars, that you be not troubled for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. Nation rises against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver up to you to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. He's talking to people right here. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. He's just talked about apocalyptic times. End times, end of the age times right there. Nations rising against. And then he says, and they're going to deliver some of you up to be afflicted and kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him which is in a house top not come down to take anything out of his house, Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that get suck in those days. But I pray that your flight and but pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, or ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is the Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, 
insomuch if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I've told you before. He's talking to them right there. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he's in the secret chambers. Don't believe it. For as the lightning comes out of the east, shines even into the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will be the eagles gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven. And the power of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall the tribes of the earth mourn. And they that see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the one end of heaven to the other. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise, you, when you shall see all these things, so likewise, you, when you shall see all these things. This is very apocalyptic language, is it not? We cannot argue with the language here. But yet he says to them, so likewise you, when you shall see all these things. When you shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily, verily, I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And not only that, he goes right on to say, heaven and earth will pass away. But my word shall not pass away. That's pretty apocalyptic. But he's talking to these people here, and he is telling them, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Some of you standing right here in front of me, Jesus is saying, will not pass away. All these things are fulfilled. And in 67 to 70 AD, those stones were thrown down. The abomination of desolation went through the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. You know, it's interesting. He allowed another 40 years, give or take, for those people in Jerusalem to repent. And that's why those people in Acts were selling their goods, selling their lands, pulling the things together, but that's not how the church world conveys it. Some of them try to convey it as if this was the beginning of communal-type living. They were getting ready to get out of Dodge, man. Because they were being warned that they needed to consider getting out of Dodge. 
You can't ignore that timestamp, that time statement. This generation shall not pass. But that is very apocalyptic language, Matthew 24. And I don't doubt that those things happened. I, the historical record is, you know, those things happened. Josephus records things from the period of that time. Secular historical records record things from the period of that time. But we've been lulled into a belief that that the church world is really propitiated. And we cannot take the dominion over this creation as Christians doing the will of the Father to take dominion, to bring righteousness into the creation because our church has been living for the great rapture and this world isn't their home. They're just passing through. They're just going to get whisked away. And the meanwhile, the wicked have taken over our land in America, and we certainly see that. And yet, really, the vast majority of professing Christians are still blind as to why it's actually happened or how or who it is that's actually doing it. But Hosea is the prophet of the greatest love story of the ages, and that's part 12. And we're at the top of the hour, so we need to close it up. And any parting comments? And let's close it up with prayer. Well, Rich, why don't I let you close with prayer? Heavenly Father, we can see your hand about us orchestrating these troubled times. Save your people, grant them wisdom, discernment, knowledge. Give them wisdom to know what evil is and what the evil intent of our enemies are. We come against them in the name of Jesus. Let their wives be widows, their children be orphans, let them beg in the streets and be no more in this generation. Make them pay for the innocent blood and the bloodshed of the children. And protect our loved ones from all evil. We thank you, Holy Father. We beseech you, Jesus, for all authority has been given to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Father. Yes, Father, do continue to give praise and glory to you. 
for all the blessings that you've been providing. Father, we thank you for the exposure of the wicked that you've exposed in these last couple of years, Father. Pray that your people's eyes continue to be open and acute and keen to the destruction that they've laid bare for, for your people. Father, our sins have risen up to your nostrils, I know. Blood cries out. Father, we have nothing in it, nothing coming in our generations because of what has happened. And Father, I know that many of your people have not been participants in this, in these evil and wicked deeds, Father. And I know that you know them and you've already sealed them written them in the Lamb's Book of Life. Father, how we thank you for it. Father, we pray that you'll continue to, as Brother Rich said, just guide, direct, teach, reach out, touch. Let your Holy Spirit descend in and upon us. Those that are not baptized, let them come to the baptism. They might receive the gift of the Holy Spirit eyes might be opened, they might be quickened in the spirit as Brother Paul the Apostle told us. Father, we just thank you for this wonderful love that you had for your people. Your people, Israel. And we thank you, Father, for opening our eyes to who those people were. Not because we were greater, not because we were smarter, not because we were a certain skin color or anything, but Father, it was your will to choose Abraham, his descendants, carry out your will in the creation, your dominion. Father, we regret, sincerely repent. We have failed in that duty and that responsibility, that awesome, awesome responsibility that we had with you. But we thank you for writing that new covenant with us. You had Paul record for us. You were here to give us a new covenant, one where you were going to write those laws upon our hearts, that we were going to serve you. We thank you for that promise, Father. We're saddened and sickened that we have strayed so far from you and we've let you down so much for that great, great, tremendous love that you had suited toward us that you would lay down your life for us. Thank you, Father. If you gave us we might be able to one day again walk with you in new life. What a magnificent love story. And we've got about four chapters to go. Think. Yeah. Seven to eleven. Seven to eleven. Yeah. Again, I want to thank all of you for taking time to share an hour or so with us, my family, these men, 
all of you. You heard uh, Melissa's voice there, uh, many of you that are here. Melissa's been joining us the last several weeks. And uh, pleasure, as I say. We're just looking for the truth in the word. We're just a ragtag bunch of Israelites. Trying to learn what our church has never taught us. So, Amen. thanks for sharing them. Go ahead, Russell. Was that you? Yes, I did. All right. Well, well I we'll I want to say I look forward to uh, to Tuesday at seven thirty, and I will be back next week. All right. Well, that sounds good. We'll be here as well. We rarely miss a week. Good enough. You all have a good evening and a great week. And keep trusting in Yahweh. He is our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night, guys. Good night.